Welcome to the Bold Speak Podcast. I'm Anthony Creedon. Today on the podcast, we're going to take a little time to discuss the Beatitudes and how a subtle shift in language can completely change the way that you read them. And on the inner out, I'm going to explain why I'm making a distinct shift in the way I go about a job hunt because of an unexpected problem that I honestly don't think many people even know about. It's all that and more as we give them the bold speak. Welcome, welcome everyone to the Bold Speak Podcast. Very glad you can join me as we continue with this study of condition of the heart, taking a look at the Sermon on the Mount. Now, leading up to this point, we've done a lot of preparation work. We've been looking at the context and trying to get an idea of the history, looking at the several chapters leading up to chapter 5 that'll prepare us to better understand what Jesus is communicating in these few chapters. And today, ladies and gentlemen, is the day. The day we finally get a chance to jump right into the Sermon on the Mount, and I get to show you all of the incredible messages and ideas that come from this amazing collection of Jesus' teachings. And we get to start today with the Beatitudes. Now, the Beatitudes are a section of Scripture that I have found can be very easily misunderstood if we aren't careful with how we read it. And in this particular regard, the English language really isn't our friend. And there's a subtle tweak that we can make to the language that opens up the meaning of the Beatitudes and really sets the stage for so many other ideas that are going to come about through the rest of the sermon. All right, so I'm super excited to get into that with you today and really dig in to the Sermon on the Mount. Now, if you have your study guide in front of you, we're going to begin with Lesson 3 today, uh, beginning on page 12. If you haven't had a chance to pick up the study guide, I would strongly encourage you to do so, and you can do that through our website at www.theboldspeak.com. There, if you go to the store and scroll down a little bit, you'll be able to find this study, and purchasing the study guide is going to give you a real advantage in this study. By purchasing the study guide, you're going to have a chance to, to jot down notes. And since each section of the Sermon on the Mount ties to the section previous to it, it's going to really help you uh, recall things much easier and connect the dots uh, much more effectively to really get an idea of what Jesus is trying to communicate about who we are as the church and the significant message he's telling us about what it means to be his church. So I would encourage you to pick that up if you have the chance. Now, in regard to the Bible, we're going to be jumping into Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we're going to specifically look at verses 1 through 12 and 13 to 16. Now, we're only going to get into the first section of 13 to 16 where he talks about being salt of the earth. And then next week, we're going to pick up on the idea of light and then connect those two together. This is a real important message that Jesus wants to let us know. All right, so we're going to be reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible. So if you have that, it'll be easier for you to follow along. If you don't have an English Standard Version of the Bible, don't worry. Just grab your favorite translation, and we can use that. I'll give you all the references so you can follow along easily. If you don't have access to a Bible right now because maybe you're driving or got something else going on, not to worry as well, I will be reading from the text so you can follow along as easily as possible. So let's go ahead and get started uh, with our reading from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. 
And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, if you take a look in your study guide, you'll see at the top of page 12, there is this section called To Begin. Here, what it discusses is a very important point about what Matthew's trying to accomplish in his gospel, and specifically what he's trying to accomplish with the Sermon on the Mount. As Matthew wants to draw connections between the Old and the New Testament, he's going to connect the events of the Sermon on the Mount to the events of Mount Sinai. As Moses received the, the commandments of God, the intention there was to teach the people how to be the people of God. In other words, what does it look like to be a follower of Yahweh? In the same way with the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew's trying to draw us into that same essential question. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean, specifically, to be the church? And so these are the issues that Matthew's trying to get at here as he gets into this collection of teachings from Jesus that he places on the Sermon on the Mount. All right, so let's take a look at this. And, and the first question we have here tied to the Beatitudes is a question that may seem a little odd, uh, and it's this. Question one, what is a conditional statement and how does it work? All right, so here you'll see I have broken down the question into two ideas that we need to really grasp and understand. All right, and they're conditional statements versus cause and effect statements. All right, so a conditional statement is an if-then statement. All right, that means that the outcome, the then part of the statement, depends on a particular condition, the if part, being met. All right, so the, the if sets a requirement, and if the requirement is met, then something results from it. All right, so it's a dependent relationship that focuses on the, the if, the requirement. Now, a cause and effect statement, this deals with an existing reality, all right, as a result of the cause which has occurred. In other words, because the cause is a reality, therefore the effect is true. Now, these sound kind of similar, but there is a critical yet subtle difference between the two. And this is where uh, we have to really pay attention to where the emphasis lies in each. For conditional statements, the emphasis is upon the condition, right? If this happens, then this is true. For a cause and effect, the emphasis is upon the effect. All right, that is to say that the effect is the result of the cause. 
Now, the reason it's so important for us to understand this subtle difference as we begin the Sermon on the Mount is because we have to decide which of these, right, if, then, or cause and effect, that we should use when it comes to the Beatitudes. Depending on our choice of conditional statement or cause and effect statement, the purpose of each Beatitude will be very different. All right, and so this is what we have to wrap our heads around, and this is where many people can unfortunately go very awry. All right, so let's go ahead and get into question two. How are we to understand the Beatitudes? The Beatitudes are not conditional statements, but cause and effect statements. All right, if you, if you go down the list, and unfortunately many times this happens when it comes to the Beatitudes, we look at them and we go, okay, so here's what we have. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, I want the kingdom of heaven, right? I mean, I, I want to be in the kingdom, have a relationship with God. Uh, well, I, I guess that means I, I have to be poor in spirit, right? And that works for some of these, right? In other words, I want to inherit the earth. I guess maybe I, I should be meek. Um, I want to receive mercy, so, so I guess I should be merciful, right? But what about some of the others? Right? I want to be comforted, so I should mourn. I should seek out mourning. I want to be satisfied, so should I starve myself in hunger and thirst for, for righteousness? All right, I, I want to be called the Son of God, so I should be a peacemaker. Okay, but I want the kingdom of God, so I should seek out being persecuted for righteousness' sake? Right? Conditional statements don't really make sense for all of them. They work for some, but not for all. The emphasis, and again, in a conditional statement, is upon the condition. All right, so maybe let's try them as cause and effect. And if we try them as cause and effect, I would propose a shift in the language. All right, and you'll see in your study guide, I've got it kind of set up there for you of each of the Beatitudes, and we're going to do a little shift that will, I think, help to make them more understandable and accessible to everyone. All right, so let's go ahead and start with the first one. The first one says, the poor in spirit are blessed because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All right, so the poor in spirit are blessed because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. With each one of these, we're going to shift the, the idea of blessing, not to say that uh, the blessing is the result of the fact that they are meek, right? There's our conditional statement. But rather, those who are meek or those who mourn or those who are poor in spirit are in a current position of being blessed because of the reality that goes after it. All right, so again, the poor in spirit are blessed because theirs is the kingdom of heaven, all right? Those who mourn are blessed because they will be comforted, right? The meek are blessed because they shall inherit the earth. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are blessed because they will be satisfied. The merciful are blessed because they shall receive mercy. The pure in heart are blessed for they shall see God, right? The peacemakers are blessed because they shall be called sons of God. Those who are persecuted for righteousness sake are blessed for theirs is the kingdom of God. 
right? Those who are reviled and persecuted on account of Jesus are blessed because they will rejoice and be glad for the reward is great, right? For so were the, the, the prophets persecuted who went before them. The emphasis here is to say that all of these people, those poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, all of these people are in a position of being blessed because God is blessing them and desires to bless them. Now, what's Jesus trying to do here? He begins the Sermon on the Mount by, by challenging the religious people of the day, right? The, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These people in society are typically looked down on, right? The poor in spirit, the, those who mourn, the, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the, the persecuted. These people are typically not really seen as being in a position of being blessed, but rather struggling as a result of some kind of sin or, or a sinful reality, bad, poor choices in their life. But Jesus is saying they don't struggle these ways because they have sinned. They're struggling in these ways because of the reality of sin in the world. But God is overcoming them and calls each of them blessed, not cursed. And this is the point he's making. Everybody sees these people as cursed as a result of their sin. Jesus is saying these people are blessed and should be treated as such. Now, beginning this way is Jesus' way of sort of framing the, the ideas that he's going to be expressing in the Sermon on the Mount. You have to understand that Jesus is going to challenge the religious people of the day in how it is that they see people fitting into the reality of the church. And that means that Jesus is going to call us, his church, to act in a very specific way toward other people so that they might understand what it means to be in relationship with God. Right? And that's the focus. What does it mean to be in relationship with God? Now, he's going to go straight from the Beatitudes in Matthew's Gospel right into this idea about being salt and light. And that's the next thing we're going to get to as we now read Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Question 3 asks, what is Jesus explaining to the church when he says we are the, quote, salt of the earth? Now, in order to answer this question, I think we have to have a good understanding of the way salt is being used here. What does Jesus mean by using the analogy of salt? Now, many people are misled because they immediately jump to the idea of salt as being a preservative, which in those days it was. It was used to preserve meats and food. But that doesn't seem to be where Jesus is going with this on the basis of the context. See, Jesus specifically points out that we're discussing the flavor, right? That's why he says, if it has lost its taste, 
Therefore, he has to be discussing salt as a, a means of augmenting flavor, not as a preservative. Okay, so now we're looking at how is Jesus using the flavor of salt, and, and what in the world does that mean? You have to remember that salt makes things taste better. That is to say, it makes food appetizing or appealing. It gives food life and, and makes it something that, that people want to eat. In the same way, we are to be salt to the earth. That is to say, we are called to bring something to the world that will give the world something it severely lacks. That's purpose and meaning. We're called to give hope to the hopeless, peace to the poor in spirit, right? Uh, the, kind of the, these ideas that we're getting to in the Beatitudes, right? The, right the, all of the ideas that he was explaining about these people who mourn and, and those who seek and, and thirst for righteousness and all of these things, we're supposed to provide for them the, the, the realities of those blessings by speaking those blessings and living those blessings into their lives. We are called to bring the message of satisfaction to the hungry and mercy to the sinner, right? All right, You see where this is going? The Beatitudes connect directly to this idea of salt and light. And this is why immediately following the Beatitudes, Jesus is telling them that this message must be taken out into the world to give the world something it desperately needs. We call that thing they need the gospel. The gospel is words of life and renewal to the lost and the broken. And not in a metaphorical way, not in an over-spiritualized or conceptualized way, but in a real-life way, right? If that's not what we're about as the church, if we're not about giving life and flavor to the world through the gospel, then honestly, what's the point? And this is the whole thing. Right, the, the whole thing, the, the church, the buildings, the, the social structures, anything and everything, if it's not for giving out freely to others in a real concrete way, then what are we doing? And the question and challenge that Jesus is presenting the, the people here and that he's presenting to us is really about what we're doing with the gospel message that God provides. All of these blessings and the way that he interacts with his people, are we keeping it to ourselves? Are we giving it out, disseminating it out to a people who desperately need to hear it? Are we giving it to the world or simply just resting on the reality of our own blessings and calling it good? The way I relate uh, this to the idea of what it means to be the church is asking a, a pretty important question about whether or not you are a pitcher or a bowl, right? A bowl is concerned with your serving, right? You bring a bowl to a meal, that bowl is filled up for you to consume. Once you consume that, you are satisfied and wait until the next opportunity for your bowl to be filled up. I think many times people treat religion and specifically Christianity like a bowl. All I do is I go and I get my serving. I go on Sunday morning. I receive these words of affirmation to me that God loves me, and I feel good about it. I feel better. And then I just simply wait until next Sunday when I can fill up my bowl again. But what Jesus is explaining here by the ideas of salt and light is that we shouldn't be bowls. We should be pitchers. See, pitchers are filled up with the express idea that it will be poured out into others, given out to those around you. 
A pitcher is not concerned with my serving, but rather having enough to give to all I encounter. And Jesus is calling us to be pitchers, right? A pitcher is specifically intended to be given out to the world. And that's what he's asking us to be as salt. All right, and that gets to question four. How might being salt look for the church today? I would emphasize the idea that being salt means being something tangible to people. We have to stop thinking of the Christian faith as a a series of ideas about God. Faith is intended for action. Don't just talk about God being there for the hurting. You be God's presence for the hurting. We need to stop talking about Jesus forgiving sins and go and forgive the sins of those who have wronged you and restore them in relationship on behalf of God. If the church is going to survive, we must stop treating the Christian faith like an ancient set of beliefs and start treating it like salt, full of life and flavor in a world where religion has become bland and tired. We have to start living out that faith in the lives of others. Not just talking about the gospel, but living it out. And I feel like so many times with the Christian faith, we typically only think of it in regard to the ideas and the words and the the concepts expressed. And, And those things are important. Doctrine, theology, all of that is important. But it's important so that we know how to rightly live that out in the lives of others. And that is a part of the Christian faith that I think we are struggling uh, to continue and something we're struggling to do. And that's why this study on the Sermon on the Mount is, is so important. Because right off the bat, Jesus is saying to us, all right, look, we need to remember that these people that we look down upon, these people that we think are are kind of struggling with all these things, and we sort of uh, give separation between us and them. These are the people that need to hear this message. A world that is hurting, a world that is broken by sin needs to hear this message. They need salt. They need light. And guess what, ladies and gentlemen? That's us. We're the salt and the light, given the express mission and purpose to go live that gospel out in people's lives so that they see who God really is and that they too can have a relationship with him. And so that's why the Sermon on the Mount starts here and starts with these ideas, because the question becomes, well, how are we salt and light to the world? And the entire rest of the Sermon on the Mount is going to show us how to rightly be salt and light to those who need it. All right, so that's how we're beginning this Sermon on the Mount, and I hope you're starting to already kind of see the importance of these messages. Um, Again, I'm I'm really glad you could join me uh, for these. Make sure if you look in your study guide, um, you'll see uh, that we're going to jump into some things uh, in the rest of this salt and light section, getting into the light. Um, Maybe take a look at that in advance, and we'll get to those questions next time, kind of connecting the salt and light ideas. Now, speaking of being light in the world and shining on darkness, in this edition of The Inner Out, I'm going to enlighten you on something I discovered while on the hunt for a job. Some of you who have been listening to the show know that I recently made the move back to the Midwest as I work on Bold Speak and find employment to pay the bills. But in my search, I came across a troubling reality I had never even considered. And it's my experience with certain job postings that is the topic of this edition of The Inner Out. Finding a job is a daunting process. 
the hundreds of job applications, the cover letters, the interviews. Many times it can feel totally overwhelming and countless times it can feel rather discouraging. The last thing a job hunter needs is a reason to feel more stressed and unsettled, which is why I was so struck when I received my first job hunt scam. The way the scam works is that scammers will search LinkedIn and find either an employee of the company that's already there or make up an employee profile. They will then set up a job posting for a remote position and post it on Google or some other job listing site that doesn't require that job to be verified in any way. Then they wait. They wait for some unsuspecting job hunter like me to apply for the job and then the scam is on. A week or two later, they will send an email that will ask if they can perform an interview over Google Hangout. They will then give you a separate Gmail email address and say that all communication should happen using either Google Hangout or the provided Gmail address. The idea is that once they get the interview, they can string you along long enough to get your bank accounts and social security information so that they can supposedly pay you when instead they empty those accounts and steal your identity. Now for those savvy enough to understand the internet and the basic professionalism that goes along with job interviews, like not using a Gmail account, this is all a giant red flag, and it's the very thing that set me on the path of quite a bit of research to discover the devious plot. When I had concluded my research, I discovered that this scam has been creeping up on unsuspecting job hunters for a while preying on the desperation that comes with looking for employment. So I decided to press a little further and just see what happens. You know, for research. I received a message over Google Hangout saying, quote, let us meet online by 8 a.m. tomorrow for the interview. Now, my first thought is separating the subjunctive like that in informal speech is typically reserved for foreigners who don't yet know the colloquial let's is used more often than not. I also noticed that the message said we should meet, quote, by 8 a.m., as if we could meet any time before that, but at least by 8 a.m. So I responded politely asking for a reference to the job posting on the company's website and more information about the position. Two things I already knew didn't exist, but just wanted to see where it went. Their response? Silence. Nothing. That is until late last week when I received an email saying, well, we should definitely schedule this online meeting. Needless to say, I never responded, and the whole incident left me rather frustrated and actually quite sad. See, there are many like me who are looking for work. They struggle with where God is leading them or if God is leading them at all. They feel the pressure of finding something, anything, to help them find financial stability. And then there are those out there who would seek to take advantage of that for their own gain. My first thought and feeling is to be angry, but the Jesus inside me makes me just feel sad. Sin breaks relationships. It tears away at the fabric of who we are as humans and the connectedness we're supposed to share with God and with each other. And when it digs itself in, well, this is what you get. A 
a lack of compassion and connection to fellow humans that makes them feel no remorse at all for their attempt to hurt other people and make themselves feel better. It's a sad reminder of the importance of the mission of the church and the great task before us to be salt and light. In the end, I pray for these people. First and foremost, I pray for others out there who are looking for work that they aren't scammed by these predators. And second, I pray for the scammers, that God in some way would show them the light in the midst of their darkness and bring them to repentance so that they can experience the gift of love and life with others as God intended it. And in the meantime, when it comes to the job hunt, I am out with Google and any other site that doesn't verify the employment opportunities they post. Either Google needs to change their process or just stop providing job postings altogether. And to my fellow job hunters, stay safe out there. And may God grant you the peace and wisdom to find the right opportunity and find it soon. And that's going to do it for this episode of the Bold Speak Podcast. Thanks again for joining me. As always, make sure you connect to us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at forward slash the Bold Speak. Make sure you check out our website at www.theboldspeak.com. And make sure you subscribe to this channel and all our media channels for the latest news, information, and lessons as we post them. Until next time, everyone, I am Anthony Creedon, and that is the Bold Speak.